You're listening to another episode of the Zag. Eric Sob here. Excited to continue our batch of episodes with NLC alums not from Los Angeles. Excited to talk to Melissa Sullivan today from NLC DC in 2011. So kind of OG-ish, which we always appreciate. Let's hear what she's up to and let's get to it. All right, Melissa, where in the world are you today? I am in Fort Lauderdale, Florida which is about 45 minutes north of Miami. And how'd you end up doing NLC in DC, but then ended up in Florida? Yes. So I am from South Florida originally. And for the past decade, I have been living and working and studying in Washington, DC. I finished my undergraduate at American University in December 2016. And I decided that I immediately wanted to go to graduate school. So I applied to Columbia University School of Social Work. I was accepted in January 2017. Thought it was a good time to exit DC. Some current events around Can't that. Can't imagine why. Yeah, exactly. Some current events around that time frame, and I also knew that living in New York City was going to be crazy expensive. So I decided to move back to South Florida, move in with my parents, as a, any good millennial would do. <laughs> and uh, it was only supposed to be for six months before I was going to start graduate school in New York. And then about a month after I moved down here, I got my aid package back from Columbia. Was not what I expected. And so I was kind of like dream school, going further in debt with student loans. It was a really tough decision, but I ultimately declined um, right before the start of the August semester last year. And so I have been working for my family's small business since I've been down here, kind of recalibrating, figuring out what's next, but all the while being involved in a number of different causes that are close to my heart. And so I'm slowly figuring out uh, what my next chapter will be, but I'm excited to see what the future will bring. So as someone like myself who lives in LA and have been here a long time, been in a very progressive blue state, uh, I don't understand Florida. So for someone that doesn't understand Florida like me, how do you usually describe it to folks? Uh, So most people know about Florida man. (laughs) It's kind of a, a running a joke of the state, unfortunately. So um, Florida is very interesting. I actually had uh, my second trip to Tallahassee, the state capital, last week. I was doing uh, some advocacy there related to uh, gun reform. And I also had an interview in the governor's office for a nonpartisan uh, fellowship for graduate students. So fingers crossed that that will go well. And I also connected with uh, the NLC folks up in Tallahassee. And it was very, it was very interesting that, as I mentioned, that was only my second trip to the state capitol. And uh, living and in, in being originally from South Florida, it's very different. Um, South Florida versus Northern Florida, the dynamics, the politics, demographics are, are very, very different. And so Florida is an interesting state. Um, it's becoming more purple. Hopefully it'll shift uh, with this election cycle to more blue, but it's it's very interesting. Um, as you might know, there's a large uh, Latin community um, and being a Latina, that's something I'm really proud of um, in, in South Florida and in Florida in general, but the demographics are, are, are definitely beginning to to shift, but it's it's interesting. Unfortunately, we're the butt of a lot of jokes nationally, as I mentioned with the Florida man reference, also hurricanes, but we do have some pretty good sports teams um, so yeah, there's a, a lot in Florida. It's a very interesting place to be. Yeah. And then in your background, there's been a lot of different advocacy routes you've taken. So uh, when you think about the advocacy that you want to focus on 
most intently now or in the next 12 months? Uh, what kind of things do you see yourself doing? So the issue that is closest to my heart is related to Veterans Affairs. That's something that I've been involved in either through paid positions or through the volunteer work that I've done essentially since 9-11. And that was a really definitive turning point in my life. Uh, I had a loved one who decided to join the Marine Corps the day after 9-11. And so being by their side when they went through multiple deployments was very challenging, all the while being a young woman, still being in high school at that point. And then in my first two years of college, it really changed my life in a lot of ways. And unfortunately, um, that individual experienced a lot of trauma and a lot of readjustment challenges once they returned state stateside following their deployments. And so that really inspired me to take some of the pain and the disappointment and the frustration that I had and, and trying to get them help and trying to get the military at that time to intervene and provide the necessary mental health services. This was early on in the Iraq war. And so unfortunately, the infrastructure that we have today was not present at this time. And unfortunately, um, I was not able to do that. And it was a very difficult and painful time in my life. And so I made a decision that I was going to put my studies on hold. And I was going to dedicate essentially my life to advocating for veterans, either through as a, as a campaign operative and later on in the Senate, um, through the advocacy work that I've done, through volunteering and, and being on, um, on boards of nonprofits. And so it's something that, I, that is really close to my heart. And ultimately, that was the reason why I decided to pursue my master's of social work is I wanted specifically to work as a social worker at the Department of Veterans Affairs at the intersection of veterans and the criminal justice system. Unfortunately, there are a lot of veterans of all conflicts and eras, but most recently veterans of Iraq and Afghanistan that are having increased contact with the criminal justice system. And so nationally, there's been a movement instead of allowing those individuals to go through the traditional process of the criminal justice system, which is a more punitive focus, it's focusing on treatment. And so there are these institutions called veterans treatment courts that have popped up around the country where veterans who are eligible, and mostly it depends on the specific jurisdiction, but mostly it's open to veterans who served honorably and who were committed of a low level nonviolent offense and instead of going through the traditional criminal justice system, when these individuals are arrested, the VA intervenes, they get put on a docket of the Veterans Treatment Court. And it's a really unique model because the oftentimes the, the, the judge, the presiding judge is a veteran, the prosecutor is a veteran. And in most cases, they have the, that, that veteran defendant who's going through the system has a veteran mentor assigned to them. And that is someone who's a graduate of the program who has successfully completed the, the, the qualifying factors. And it's, it's an awesome model. And there have been studies that have shown that this model has reduced recidivism. And it's, it's really great on, on addressing the root causes of the criminality among these veterans, which is most often tied to PTSD, which is tied to a service incident, whether it be trauma that they saw in combat or a, a comrade taking their life when they come home stateside. And so it's, it's really complex, but this has been a super successful model. And so that, that's something that, that I'm very interested in. And, and I'm currently reapplying to more affordable <laughs> graduate school programs at this point. And so it's something that I would still very much love to do. But um, prim first and foremost, my, my primary interest of advocacy is related to veterans and military families. As I said, it's, it's a huge part of my heart. And it's something that unfortunately, to this day, still needs a lot of attention and, and increased funding for. 
Absolutely. When we come back, I'll ask some more questions about what progressives can do to support that cause. Thanks for listening to The Zag. We'll be right back. So I, th- I think with the VA, a lot of folks who don't follow it as, as closely as you would feel like there's a lot of bureaucracy. It's somewhat of an intractable problem. Do you feel that same way? Like what what ways can progressives be supportive like at a policy level or at a governmental level so that veterans get the support that they deserve when they when they come home? Sure. So as you mentioned, it is typically, unfortunately, an issue that that conservatives have championed or are associated with. They, they seem to be viewed as strong on military and strong on defense and strong on veterans issues. But there are a lot of emerging progressive um, voices in, in this space. And so I, I would say, number one, especially considering that we're in an election year, is to support veterans that are running for office. There are a number of organizations, political action committees, that are dedicated solely to recruiting and assisting veteran candidates run for office. There's a great organization called Vote Vets, which is a political action committee, and they specifically recruit and support veteran candidates. You go to their website, you can see their endorsed candidates. And I'm really happy to see that. I mean, when you think when you look at the rates of those who are currently serving in Congress, and when we would go back, you know, 30, 40, 50 years, demographically, most everyone had served. And that might just be a product of the time with World War II and and the expectations of service at that time. But I don't think that should change. I think that when you're talking about passing bills, authorizing military conflicts, and when you're talking about funding the VA, which is one of the largest, has one of the largest uh, budgets of the federal government, I think you need people who really understand what what, what that requires, but also understand what that service has, has given to America. And I think when you have those in Congress who are voting on, on these issues, there's a disconnect there. They haven't served on the ground. They don't understand what it's like to be in combat. They don't understand what it's like to have a family member struggle with mental illness as a result of their service. And that's not to say that you have to be a veteran or you have to have worn the uniform in order to get that. But I think it would certainly help to have more individuals who have lived that firsthand to be included in the conversation rather than have people who those concepts might be alien to them. Um, I think also hiring veterans, um, whether that's as, as staffers um, in the Senate or in the House, I, to, to bring more uh, voices to these issues and to highlight them, I think that is incredibly important. And then also volunteering being involved in, in, in a nonprofit in your community. There are a number of great organizations who, who you can support depending on where you live. Like nationally, there's an organization called Tragedy Assistance Program for Survivors. And what they do is they provide financial assistance, counseling, uh, just general assistance to survivors of uh, those who are killed in combat or who unfortunately die by suicide. And it's an amazing organization. There's an organization called The Mission Continues, another fantastic organization. There are veterans groups everywhere, so it's just a matter of connecting with them. And unfortunately, there's something called the civil-military divide, where in our society, you might know the number of those who are currently serving or who have served in these most recent conflicts is less than 1%. And so when you're talking about connecting with individuals on experiences that that you can't really fathom, there can be some difficulty there. There can be a large chasm. And so it's just 
simply reaching out as a civilian, not only showing your appreciation, because let's be honest, talk is cheap. You can slump a, you can slap a bumper sticker on your car, or you can shake someone's hand and thank them for their service. But there's really more than that that's required in order to really show appreciation for the sacrifices that someone has made on behalf of our country. And it's really understanding what their needs are. It could be a conversation. It can, it can really go anywhere. And so I think a lot of civilians can be a little bit intimidated to connect with veterans. And I think it's really starting to break down those barriers and understanding what that community needs, how you can support them as a civilian, and, and really just a, a general curiosity. I think that's a really good place to start. Yeah. And then uh, last question, we were interested to see, or I, I was interested rather to see last year in our fellows group, we had our first um, veteran fellow. And so she served in Afghanistan. Um, yeah. And her perspective was so interesting to add to the dynamic of the group and, and giving that perspective on, on service, of course, but also just on foreign policy matters or uh, what nation building means, doesn't mean, or what it should mean to progressives when you should intervene, when you shouldn't. Is super important. So, like, what's your short answer to how could NLC find a way to uh, advertise in a way that would attract more veteran fellows in the future? I think definitely recruiting more veterans is very important. So, when I was in NLCDC, we had a conversation about that, and we actually, in my class, we had, um, I believe, three veterans, oh, wow. and that was something that we wanted to bring to the selection committee's attention for the next round of applicants was making sure that we were connecting with the veteran community and really valuing their service and understanding that the perspective that they bring, the diversity that they bring, and really recruiting them as a part of the cause. And so we made a concerted effort to have recruitment events specifically for the military and veteran community. And luckily in D.C., that's an environment where there are a lot of military members and a lot of veterans. So we were fortunate, but I understand that not every chapter might have access to that large pool of, of veteran applicants, but I think it's really understanding and valuing the qualities that these candidates bring to the table. And as I mentioned, building bridge, they're building bridges. There are a lot of different organizations that you can partner with. And I think that's another strategy that might be helpful whether it's organizations like Student Veterans of America or nonprofit organizations that have a large veteran contingent, I think it's really starting the conversation and, and reaching out to them and understanding that their experiences are different and maybe they haven't been able to express their, their progressive values in a way that is out loud as um, most people who, who work in politics have because there are really strict rules while you're while you are in uniform of what you can and cannot do politically. And so just understanding that and and not looking strictly at someone's resume and um and, and judging them on that, but really understanding what the potential is and like you said, the diversity. And the other thing too about veterans is they have a tremendous commitment to to duty and to service and to teamwork. And so they're really amazing assets when you're talking about an organization, like they are willing to get in the trenches, so to speak, and roll up their sleeves. And, and, you know, for instance, with the fellows fundraiser, we had veterans who had never asked anyone for money before, but they were some of the most effective when it came to that, you give them a task, you give them a mission, and they'll carry it out. And so I think it's, it's really understanding what their strengths are, being welcoming, and partnering with organizations that might already have that built-in veteran base and selling them on NLC, explaining why NLC is important, 
and what they can get out of NLC, what NLC can do for them and their career and growing as a person and, and really communicating that and connecting and not so much focusing on, on that veteran label, as I mentioned earlier, and being intimidated by that or, or, or drawing such a hard uh, line in the sand between civilian and, and military member or veteran and, and just being flexible and open. I think that will will reap a lot of rewards. Yeah, that's great advice. Listen, thanks for all you're doing. Hold it down there in Florida. We'd love to see purple turn blue. Appreciate all the work you're, you're doing there. And appreciate everyone who listened to this episode of the Zag. It's actually the 40th one, hard to believe. You can find the previous 39 in the iTunes store, on the Google Play store, SoundCloud, just about everywhere. Download and subscribe. Rate it as well. Thanks for listening. We'll have more episodes later this week. Take care. <laughs>